we have traced the great controversy down through the ages. And you know, one of the things that is most remarkable about the great controversy, to me at least, is simply how long it's taken. You know, I mean, come on. We're talking about God. God can do anything. Why would it take so long? Well, not only can he do anything, he's smart enough to do the right thing. I want to cover a lot of ground today. And I will take some comfort in Ellen White's statement that says that the words of man, if of any value, echo the, or the thoughts of man, if of any value, echo the thoughts of God. I won't have a lot of my own words to say because I'm dealing in an area where I don't know much. The future is uh, a mystery to humankind, and that's where we're going. We want to see the end of the conflict. Actually, we're, I'm going to stop short of the end. We'll not be, uh, we'll not be directly dealing with all that God has taken as his responsibility but I want to go up to the end of our responsibility. We are the ones, after all, who you know, we're, we're dealing with today. So let's bow our heads for a quick word of prayer. Father, we ask your presence. We pray that you would use this occasion and the instruction that you've given us to be a blessing to guide our thoughts and our actions. May we do as Jesus would do if he were here, since he has entrusted his ministry to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> okay. Just a kind of a quick overview. 6,000 years ago, roughly, give or take, the members of the Godhead understood Satan's plans and arguments, and they rejected them, but nobody else really understood the situation clearly. That's what has stretched this problem out for as long as it has. <clears throat> 2,000 years ago, roughly, angels and unfallen worlds understood Satan's plans and arguments and rejected them, because Jesus showed that Satan's claims about the Godhead were false. And I just want you to want to point out that this is an issue that required more than pronouncement. It required demonstration. God could not say, I'm really a good guy. You ought to trust me. <laughs> he had to show it. He had to show it. When Christ came to the earth in person, Satan's fiercest warfare was directed against him. But by causing the Son of God to be crucified, Satan struck a blow at himself. When Christ died on the cross, Satan's death knell was sounded. His deceptions were narrowly... Oh, we don't use that word that way any longer. The... Um, the, the figure of speech there is like this kind of squinting of the eyes to narrowly watch 
is to watch very, very carefully because you don't really know whether you trust this thing or not, okay? So we would say maybe closely watched, but his deceptions were closely watched by the inhabitants of the unfallen worlds as he, in disguise, worked in such a way that he thought he could not possibly be detected. But he was left to follow his own course to condemn himself by his own deeds. And that's important. Satan could not be condemned because God said he's guilty. He had to be condemned by his own deeds. And before the cross, as in in front of the cross or in the light of the cross of Calvary, he stood revealed in his true character. When Christ cried out, it is finished, the unfallen worlds were made secure. For them, the battle was fought and the victory won. Henceforth, Satan had no place in the affections of the universe. The arguments he had brought forward, and here's the arguments, that self-denial was impossible with God and therefore unjustly required from his created intelligences was forever answered. Satan's claims were forever set aside. The heavenly universe was secured in eternal allegiance. Now, I want to just point out a little logical deduction I get from this, okay? Satan had said, self-denial is impossible with God. I mean, he can get anything he wants, right? He speaks and it stands fast. How can you, be, how can you deny yourself? As, uh, I'd like a bagel, you know? <laughs> and you got a bagel, you know? How can you deny yourself when you have the power of creation at your command, see? And so Lucifer said, you know, God never denies himself. It's unjust to require self-denial of the created beings. Well, it says here that that charge, that accusation, argument, that's the word it says, okay, that argument was forever answered. And I would like to suggest that what that means is that self-denial is therefore justly required of his created beings. Not only is it possible with God, but it's justly required. Let's go on. The next step in the process, this is the one that's most important to us. The Godhead saw through Satan's plans. The universe saw through Satan's plans. It's, they're waiting on us. We are mentally challenged. You know? <laughs> we don't catch on real fast. We're morally challenged, which is perhaps the bigger problem. But anyhow, so hopefully, sometime in the near future, the 144,000 will understand Satan's plans and arguments and will reject them, and in the process will show or demonstrate to, <laughs> will show to, or will show, will demonstrate to the unfallen worlds that Satan's claims about humanity are false. I want you to catch the parallel there. It required a member of the Godhead to demonstrate that Satan's claims about the Godhead were false. But Satan has also made accusations about humanity. Remember the accuser of the brethren? You know, Zechariah 3, right? Joshua before the angel. Satan has made accusations about the human race as a category. Who's going to prove them false? Satan has declared that men and women 
could not enter the kingdom of heaven unless the law was abolished and a way devised by which transgressors could be reinstated into the favor of God and made heirs of heaven by abolishing the law. This is his whole argument. He made the claim that the law must be changed, that the reins of government must be slackened in heaven, that sin must be tolerated and sinners pitied and saved in their sins. See, this was, the whole, this was the whole motivation for Satan. He got kicked out of heaven because he had sinned. He said, God, you ought to change that law. And God said, now, there's an interesting thing, and we're not going to go off into this right now, but I'll just plant a seed in your mind. You read what Ellen White has to say about that discussion, and God never says, I won't change the law. He never says that. He always says, I can't. I cannot change the law. That's just a seed for thought. Let's go on. <clears throat> Every soul that develops a righteous character and withstands the power of the wicked one is a testimony to the falsehood of Satan's charges against the divine government. Well, the charge is against the divine government because the divine government has proposed saving human beings, okay? Taking people like you and me back to heaven. And Satan's accusation is human beings can't unless you drop the law, okay? And so anytime a human being does, that's an argument or that is a, a testimony to the falsehood of Satan's charges, okay? Well, here's a famous statement. Christ is waiting with longing desire for the manifestation of himself in his church. When the character of Christ shall be perfectly reproduced in his people, then he will come to claim them as his own. That's a, that's a great statement. I, I really like it. Some of you are old enough to remember when that was a very, very divisive hot topic statement back in, what was it? It was uh, about the, it was the second quarter of 1977, I believe it was, in the Sabbath school lessons. You may or may not remember that particular occasion, but there was a whole shipment of Sabbath school lessons that were burned at the dock at one country because they were not in favor of uh, what was being presented. And it was basically off of this statement. Okay, so Christ is waiting for this long, for the manifestation of, his, of himself, okay, when his, get the right spot here, when his character is perfectly reproduced. Now, I'm going to say that I think sometimes we have really kind of put this statement into a strange set of circumstances and context. And, and there's been a lot of, I would say, somewhat misdirected argument as to what it means to perfectly reproduce the character of Christ. <coughs> I don't think it has to do with whether you eat linkets or vegetables veggie dogs or whatever, you know, I mean, it's, 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 it's you know, which brand you buy. I don't, I don't think that's it, okay? We get, we get really fussy sometimes about things that I think are, are maybe missing something. So I like this next statement. It comes from the same book, so it's, it's more or less the same context. It's admittedly um, 300 and some odd pages down the, down the road in the book, but I like it. Just so remember what we're talking about here, the character of Christ perfectly reproduced, and this next statement says... The completeness of Christian character is attained when the impulse to help and bless others springs constantly from within. 
when the sunshine of heaven fills the heart and is revealed in the countenance. Now, that is not to say, all we have to do is love people and we don't have to worry about the Sabbath and all this other stuff. That's just unnecessary baggage. No, that's not what that's saying, okay? What it's saying is, if you, are, if you, if you actually love people, if you actually have this desire to help and bless springing from within, and you combine that with intelligence, an intelligent understanding of God's plan and the great controversy and the circumstances of it, then you will see the need for all these other things that people like to sometimes dismiss as being extra baggage. There is a reason for the Sabbath. There is a reason for health reform. There is a reason for all these other things. And those reasons appeal to the intelligence of anyone who wants to help and bless his neighbor. Let's go on. In these thoroughly converted souls, the world has a witness to the sanctifying power of truth upon the human character. Through them, Christ makes known to the world his character and will. Okay, thoroughly converted souls. In the lives of God's children is revealed the blessedness of serving the Lord, and the opposite is seen in those who do not keep his commandments. The line of demarcation is distinct. And what I want to point out of this here is that there is a blessedness. It is a natural cause-effect relationship that comes from obedience and serving the Lord. It's not because God says, do 20 jumping jacks. Okay, I'll bless you with some money. You know, that's not the kind of relationship it is. It's the kind of thing where God says, get a little exercise. And so you go for a walk and your heart works better. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's a cause and effect blessedness. And it's a cause and effect cursedness. On the other side, right? The line of demarcation is distinct. Well, let's go on. Those who wait for the bridegroom's coming... Okay, I, I want to just preface this just a little bit. Notice the heading at the top, but how? Okay, there's going to be a lot of those with but how. The question here is, how are we, as God's people, to go about refuting Satan's accusation? Because that's where we're at, right? That's the next step. How do we do that? It includes a lot of things. This is, you know, includes the take the gospel to all the earth. It includes reflect the character of Jesus fully. It includes all, how do we do that? Everything is held up, waiting on us, waiting for spiritual growth to the point where God says, okay, now I can seal them. So that's what we're looking at. But how? How do we do this? Okay. Those who wait for the bridegroom's coming are to say to the people, Behold your God. Now just stop. Those who are waiting for the bridegroom, Adventists, right, are to say to the people, Look carefully at your God. Behold your God. And where are the people of the world supposed to look? Where are they supposed to see 
God. Statement goes on. The last rays of merciful light, the last message of mercy to be given to the world is a revelation of his character of love. The children of God are to manifest his glory. A revelation is not the same as a proclamation. They both are good, but they are not exactly the same thing. Statement goes on. In their own life and character, they are to reveal what the grace of God has done for them. The light of the Son of Righteousness is to shine forth in good works, in words of truth and deeds of holiness. Okay, there you've got your proclamation, the words of truth, and your revelation, the deeds of holiness. Okay? Me standing up here saying great and profound things all of which come from an inspired source rather than from me, is of limited value, no matter how great, no matter how profound. Proclamation is good, but it has limits. We'll see that later on. Statement continues. <clears throat> Christ, the outshining of the Father's glory, came to the world as its light. He came to represent God to men, and of him it is written that he was anointed with the Holy Ghost and with power, and he went about doing good. In the synagogue at Nazareth, he said, the Spirit of the Lord, God, of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. Now, this is Jesus' announcement of his Messiahship, okay? The word Messiah means? Okay. And that's what he just said right here, because he hath anointed me. He's saying, I'm the Messiah. Okay? Well, he's, he said that when he got to the end, and he says, this day is this fulfilled in your hearing. Okay? So he's reading a prophecy about the Messiah, and then he just says, it's happening right now. Okay? So, but I'm ahead of myself. So look at what he says. Because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, he hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. This was the work he commissioned his disciples to do. Okay, so the work that testified to his Messiahship is what he gave to his disciples. He said, you know, I've been doing this for the last three and a half years. You guys, carry on. This is the work which the prophet Isaiah describes when he says, Is it not to deal thy bread to the hungry, and that thou bring the poor that are cast out to thy house, when thou seest the naked, that thou cover him, that thou hide not thyself from thine own flesh? Then shall thy light break forth as the morning, and thine health shall spring forth speedily, and thy righteousness shall go before thee. The glory of the Lord shall be thy rearward. Thus, in the night of spiritual darkness... God's glory is to shine forth through his church in lifting up the bowed down and comforting those that mourn. Okay, I just want you to notice here, there's a, there's a, a very strong practical component in what's being said here. In the night of spiritual darkness, this is addressed to those people at the, the end of time, right? The last message of mercy. The glory of God is to shine forth through his church in lifting up the bowed down. Who are they? 
Who are the bowed down? That's people that are having a hard time. <laughs> okay? Comforting those that mourn. Who are they? People that are having a hard time. <laughs> Let's go on. All around us are heard the wails of a world's sorrow. On every hand, there, uh, excuse me, on every hand are the needy and distressed. It is ours to aid in relieving, relieving and softening life's hardships and misery. Practical work will have far more effect than mere sermonizing. Sermonizing is good. To a point. <laughs> Practical work is better. <laughs> okay? We are to give food to the hungry, clothing to the naked, shelter the homeless, and we are called to do more than this. The wants of the soul, only the love of Christ can satisfy. We are not to be a gospel-less social gospel. Okay? We are not to carry on simply and solely humanitarian relief. We are called to do more than this. We are called to address the wants of the soul. The statement continues. God calls not only for our gifts for the needy, but for our cheerful countenance, our helpful words, our kindly hand clasp. When Christ healed the sick, he laid his hands upon them. So should we come in close touch with those whom we seek to benefit. You know, my cheerful countenance probably does not include a picture posted on the wall somewhere. <laughs> this countenance, this kindly, helpful words, hopeful words, kindly hand clasp, what that means is I have to be there. I have to actually be there. I have to tell you a funny story. I, I don't know what this means, and, but it's, it was just, it was strange. Uh, at the, the local church that I go to up in Canada, they have a little program. They've had it going for a couple of years already. They, they have a soup kitchen every Wednesday night. You know, you could wonder about the effectiveness of a soup kitchen one night a week. Seems like people get awful hungry in between, but anyhow. <laughs> but... <laughs> But nonetheless, that's what they've been doing, and it's, it's gratefully received. And so uh, a few weeks back, it was really interesting, this one particular gentleman who shall remain anonymous uh, came into the soup kitchen, and he's a pleasant enough guy. Um, if I'm to believe his account, he was actually raised in a Seventh-day Adventist home as a foster child years ago and was severely abused in that home. Um, he's had a tough life. Um, though he doesn't remember most of it due to the side effects of a variety of bottles. Um, but anyhow, he's, he's a nice guy. He, he actually is. He's a good artist, and he's a friendly guy. But he came in this particular day, and he'd been spending a little too much time with one of those bottles. And uh, so he came up to me, and I shook hands, and I, I gave him a good hearty handshake, and, and I, I guess I overdid it somehow or the other. And uh, about five minutes later, he suddenly announced that he took offense that I had shake, shook his hand too hard, that uh, he interpreted that, that you know, basically I was challenging him and that I wanted to fight. Well, I didn't actually want to fight. Um, he's, um, 
he's a lot bigger guy than I am. <laughs> and I like to think I'm very brave, but I also like to think that I'm occasionally smart. So anyhow, uh, um, I, I managed to kind of divert this a little bit, and I just stood there, and, and you know, there were people that were uh, you know, fearful on my account, and that was kind to them, but, but I, I, just, I, I really wasn't afraid at all, but I was standing there, and he was, he was doing a, you know, this pop the, pop the bicep thing, you know, and, and I was standing there saying, oh, you know, hey, it's okay, man, it's, it's cool, you know. He says, do you want to fight? I said, no, I don't want to fight. Why would I want to fight? You know, that doesn't make sense. He says, you know, if I get in a fight with you, I'm going to lose. Why would I want to do that, you know? <laughs> And so it, it, it carried on. Finally, I talked him down, and, and I thought, you know, it just wasn't quite dying. So I said, you know, why don't we settle this the easy way? Well, let's just arm wrestle, <laughs> you know? And so somehow I talked him down into the arm wrestling thing, okay? <laughs> and I figured, this is simple, you know? Okay, I put, up a, I put up the best resistance I can. He wins, and then we're best friends forever, you know? Okay, this is good. Um, because, you know, he, he really does look like a pretty pretty strong guy. You know, his biceps are about twice mine type of thing, you know, and he, I know he pumps a lot more metal than I have the patience to worry about. And so <laughs> uh, if I'm going to pump anything, it'll be a hay bale, but, you know, the idea of just shoving metal around him, that's <laughs> never has appealed to me. Anyhow, so I, we sit down at the table, and, and my wife is like, oh, my oh, brother. <laughs> and so we, we get the old hands together, you know, type of thing. And we go, one, two, three. And it was the weirdest thing. I just kind of, and my hand just froze. And he's, and, and I, I, I'm, not the, I'm not the brightest, you know, the brightest little dim bulb in the world, you know? And so I said, uh, come on, man, you're playing with me. Well, I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> and, 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 you know, some, I, I don't know, but I'm thinking there was an angel with at least one little pinky finger down here someplace, because he tried, and he tried, and either he was weak from, you know, does, does his muscle weakness come from being inebriated? Okay, that may explain it there. There may be a natural explanation, because he looked like he had just enough muscles, he could just kind of pile them up on top of my hand, and the weight of the gravity would win, you know, but he never, he never moved an inch. It was funny, you know, it's, it's, anyhow, that had nothing to do with anything, but I just thought I'd tell you this story. <laughs> but sometimes you have to be there, you know? Be careful with the friendly hand clasp. You can overdo it, evidently. So, <laughs> but anyhow, that was dumb, but that's okay. It's, it's a good story. Let's go on. <laughs> there are many from whom hope has departed. A lot of people are in tough shape out there. Bring back the sunshine to them. Many have lost their courage. Speak to them words of cheer. Pray for them. There are those who need the bread of life. Read to them from the word of God. Upon many is a soul sickness which no earthly balm can reach nor physician heal. Pray for these souls. Bring them to Jesus. Tell them that there is a balm in Gilead and a physician there. We have to come in contact with the people to do that kind of stuff. Let's go on. God designs that his grace should be made manifest in the believer. That through the Christ-like character of individual members, I really kind of want to emphasize those two words, the church may become the light of the world. There's another statement, I didn't put it in here. 
we always have a tendency to shift to organizations and institutions the responsibility which rests upon us as individuals. Just do it yourself. You don't need a committee. <laughs> really, you know, the committee will sit there and debate forever trying to decide whether you should do something. Just do some things yourself. Through observing our lives, the people of the world form their opinion of God and of the religion of Christ. All who do not know Christ need to have the high, noble principles of his character kept constantly before them in the lives of those who do know him. Not so much necessarily in the sermons of those who do know him. They're not going to sit and listen to your sermon anyhow, right? These are the people of the world. But if they have some, you know, if, if, if you're down there with them somehow, they can't avoid the fact that you're there and they end up seeing your life. Statement goes on. All the light of the past, which shines unto the present and reaches forth into the future, as revealed in the word of God, is for every soul who will receive it. But the glory of this light, which is the very glory of the character of Christ, can never be expressed in words. Look at that. I, I, that one just blew me away when I found it. Okay, Because we've spent easily, well, in a very particular sense, the last 62 years, since 1950, trying to find the magic bullet magic theological formula for our words to restart the loud cry. And what we're looking for can never be expressed in words. So give it up. <laughs> give it up. <laughs> okay, words are important. There are words which can fail to or detract from what needs to be done, so be careful about your words. But if you think you're going to preach your way to the second coming, you can now discard that idea. <laughs> Human language is inadequate to reveal it. It must be made manifest in the life. It is to be manifest in the individual Christian, okay? In the family, in the church, in the ministry of the word, and in every institution established by God's people. Even these words fail of reaching the greatness and the glory of God's purpose to be accomplished through his people. Not to this world only, but to the universe are we to make manifest the principles of his kingdom, okay? Ellen White says, you know, I can't even do this. My words fail. It has to be manifest. God has given us a commission which angels might envy. Stop there for just a second. I think I've used this illustration once before here, but that's okay. Bear with me if you remember it. And if you remember it, congratulations. Um, if Jesus went to Gabriel right now and said, Gabriel, there's a guy down there by the name of Dave. Would you like to trade places with him? 
I honestly believe Gabriel's response would be in a heartbeat. Done. Why? Because this planet is the only place in the entire universe where souls can be saved. <laughs> Somehow we fail to grasp, I fail to grasp that. It's, this, is, this is the golden opportunity. I mean, you can't add another life through all eternity up in heaven. You can do it down here. God has given, a commission, given us a commission which angels might envy. The church has been charged to convey to the world without delay God's saving mercy. This is the trust that he has given us, and it is to be faithfully executed. Medical missionary work is to be done. Hey, that's a cool thought. Medical missionary work is so intrinsically intertwined with this entire concept of the manifestation of the character of God. Why would medical missionary work be necessary in order to manifest the character of the great medical missionary? Let's see if we can think that through. <laughs> thousands upon thousands of human beings are perishing in sin. The compassion of God has moved. All heaven is looking on with intense interest to see what character medical missionary work will assume under supervision of human beings. They saw what it was like when Jesus was here. But he left it in our portfolio. And so the universe wants to know, I wonder how this is going to work when they run it. You know? It's like this business is under new management, sort of, kind of. The top management's still there, but, you know, it's kind of a sub-franchisee operation or something. Will men make merchandise of God's ordained plan for reaching the dark parts of the earth with the manifestation of his benevolence? Will they cover mercy with selfishness and then call it medical missionary work? Really? Does anyone have the nerve to do that? I fear we do. I fear I do. How important is medical missionary work? Well, I've come to value it quite highly. This is one of the statements that makes me think that. The truth for this time, the third angel's message, is to be proclaimed with a loud voice, meaning with increasing power, as we approach the great final test. Now... There's no close quotes there, so the statement continues on the next frame. And I'll just tell you, the next sentence says, this test must come to the churches in connection with blank. And some of you have heard this, and that's good. I'm happy. But wouldn't you have normally thought from Ellen White that the great final test must come to the churches in connection with the Sabbath? Isn't that what you would normally think? But no, it's not what it says. 
This test must come to the churches in connection with the true medical missionary work, a work that has the great physician to dictate and preside in all it comprehends. How? What's that mean? How does that play out? Well, <clears throat> Satan knows, probably better than we do, you know that Satan will come in to deceive, if possible, the very elect. He claims to be Christ, and he, and he is coming in pretending to be the great medical missionary. He will cause fire to come down from heaven in the sight of men to prove that he is God. Okay, so yeah, you know, Revelation talks about the fire in the sight of men, and there's been a lot of discussion about that. Is that literal or is that figurative somehow? What, what does that mean? I'm not going to wade into that discussion right now. But notice, right here, Ellen White puts on a, on a par that he comes in as the great medical missionary. I'm going to suggest from that statement and others, and I don't know how many others I've got in the presentation this morning, but from that statement and others, I get the distinct idea that Satan knows full well that the finishing up of God's work requires a medical missionary component. And if he realizes that, he'd have to be really, you know, several steps off the top of his game to not come up with a counterfeit medical missionary component. Right? I mean, you know, he's not dumb. Everything you know about the true, you try to confound by the previous introduction of a counterfeit, right? Probably the most famous statement along that line that we've paid a lot of attention to is the one where it says, you know, Satan knows there'll be uh, the, the, the latter rain will come, and so he tries to introduce a, a revival beforehand, right? Remember that statement, okay? <clears throat> well... The great medical missionary, pretending to be the great medical missionary. Now, I'm jumping here. This statement, well, let's read it. It says, the gold mentioned by Christ, the true witness, which all must have, has been shown me to be faith and love combined, and love takes the precedence of faith. Okay, interesting. Precedence of faith. What does... Precedence mean? Takes place first. Okay, you can look at precedence two ways, either in terms of order of event or of significance of event. Okay? And usually, I'll, I'll be honest, I would, I would usually, I, I think in the past when I've read this statement, I have always thought in terms of significance that the intent here was the gold represents faith and love combined but uh, love is the more important of the two that's probably the way I, I have read it in the past I'm not going to argue with anybody less, <laughs> other than myself um, but I'm, I'm thinking that it may actually be more in order of event so the gold is faith and love combined and love kicks into gear before faith. 
Uh, you'll see why I'm thinking that here in just a little bit. Oh, I, I sh wanted to make another comment on this. <coughs> Um, just to make sure everybody's on the, on the same page here. Oops, no sense pointing. Uh, the true witness, right? What, what context is this taken out of? That's it, yeah. It's the message to Laodicea, right? Okay, so there were the three items, the, the, the white raiment, the ISAB, and the, the gold, right? Okay, and that was because Laodicea was rich and increased with goods, or at least they thought so, but they were in fact poor, wretched, miserable, blind, and naked. Okay, so let's go on. In giving Christ to our world for the redemption of the human family, God planned to change the destructive tendencies of man's influence. Stop for just a moment. Man's influence fits into what category? Destructive. <laughs> okay. How much influence do you have? Well, you know what? Everybody has some. And naturally speaking, it's all destructive. <laughs> it's, it's just where we're at, okay? But God planned to change the destructive tendencies of man's influence, and he lays special claim upon that influence seeks to press it into his service and by his Holy Spirit sanctify the ability. Now, I just want to kind of emphasize a thought here that if you want to get something done, anything, I don't care what it is, it requires the ability to exert an influence. Sometimes it's, it's a simple physical influence. If I wanted to move this mic stand from point A to point B, I have to be able to exert a physical force which influences the object, okay? But mostly what we're talking about is people's minds. And in the gospel, in the work of evangelization, influence is king. If you don't have influence, Nothing's going to happen. <laughs> Influence is gold. That's, that's what you want. And as a soul winner, everything we do should be evaluated. What will its influence be in my, on my ability to win souls? Everything we do, everything we say, everything we wear, everything, whatever, 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 our example always exerts an influence. Is it a positive one? Is it a negative one? I'd like to think there are some that are at least just neutral. You know, it probably is not going to make a difference on anybody's soul whether I eat an apple or a banana for breakfast. But influence, God wants our influence. He lays special claim upon that influence. The statement goes on. 
The plan of God was that the highest influence in the universe emanating from the center of all power should be brought to bear on human lives. Stop right there for just a moment. How is that supposed to happen? The highest influence in the universe emanating from the center of all power. What, where, when, why, how, who, what, you know, all those questions. What are we talking about? And I'd like to suggest we're talking about the cross. The goodness and love of God subdues the heart, and then man becomes a channel to communicate these divine impressions to his fellow men. That's the whole point. Our job, well, nah, I don't want to say it that way. Let's put, let's put there's a, there's a, there's a, a chain effect. God exerts an influence on our minds through the revelation of the, the life and the sacrifice of Christ. That is supposed to change us. It's supposed to set up harmonic vibrations, right? Everybody's done that with a piano at one point or another. You know, you gently hold down a C up here, and then you go to a C down below, and you whack it once, and you let it go, and it stops, but this one's vibrating, right? Have you done that? You haven't done that? <laughs> you need to do that. <laughs> it's, it's fun. Uh, <laughs> the, the sound waves from one, one string vibrating set the other string vibrating. What I really ought to do, now this would be fun. I don't know if this would work or not. You hold down, say, middle C, and you give the C below a whack, and then you let the key up, and the damper stops that one, but middle C should be vibrating, and then very gently push down the C above and see if middle C vibrating can get that one vibrating. There you go. There's your science fair project. <laughs> the goodness and love of God subdues the heart, and then man becomes a channel to communicate these same divine impressions to his fellow man. That's, that's our job. Isaiah 58 is the work God requires his people to do. With the work, not without, with the work of advocating the commandments of God and repairing the breach that has been made in the law of God, we are to mingle compassion for suffering humanity. We are to show supreme love to God. We are to exalt his memorial, Sabbath, which has been trodden down by unholy feet. And with this, we are to manifest mercy, benevolence, and the tenderest pity for the fallen race. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Somebody said that was the second commandment once. I remember reading that. As a people, we must take hold of this work. Love revealed for suffering humanity gives significance and power to the truth. I don't like being powerless. I, I, I just don't like that at all. I always used to tell my students, you know, don't assume that you're powerless. There are really very, very few instances in which you're powerless, where there's nothing you can do. You know, people would say, 
Oh, I couldn't do that. I have to do this. You don't have to do. There's only, there's only about two things you have to do. Die and face the judgment. In between, you don't have to do stuff, you know. I have to go to class. You don't have to go to class. You can cut class. Maybe a stupid thing to do. The, the results of cutting class may not be good, but you can cut class. Come on. Don't assume that you're so powerless. There's very few places in life where you're actually powerless. You know, if you're flying along over the Pacific someplace and all of a sudden the roof blows off the airplane and you get sucked out at 35,000 feet, you might think you're powerless, but you're not. You're not. You can increase your chances of surviving quite a bit, actually, even in that circumstance. You know? You kind of arch your back a little bit, you put your hands back this way, point your toes, get yourself into a delta position. You can actually assume a glide ratio of one to one. That's a whole lot better than going straight down. Okay? You can decrease your free fall speed from about 180 miles an hour down to all the way to about 120. That's a lot better, you know? And then when you're coming down, you look for a wave, you look for the backside of the thing, and you try to come in on it sideways. Okay? What are your chances? Really slim. But why give up before you hit? You know, come on. <laughs> so <laughs> just, it doesn't make sense to me. Come on. This is, this is craziness. When you give up hope, you know what you become? Hopeless. I don't like being hopeless. I don't like, I got sidetracked again. I, I don't like, I don't like having no significance. I don't like having no power. I don't like God's work being insignificant and powerless. It's like, that really bugs me. Here we are. We're supposed to be calling the whole world to stand before the bar of God, and they go, oh, what? As a people, we must take hold of this work. Love revealed for suffering humanity gives significance and power to the truth. Nothing will help us more at this stage of our work than to understand and to fulfill the mission of the greatest medical missionary that ever trod the earth. Nothing will help us more than to realize how sacred is this kind of work and how perfectly it corresponds with the life work of the great missionary. The object of our mission is the same as the object of Christ's mission. Why did God send his son to the fallen world? to make known and to demonstrate to mankind his love for them. So what do you suppose our mission is? If our mission, if the object of our mission is the same as the object of his mission, and God sent him to make known his love, what do you suppose we're supposed to be doing? Making known the love of God to mankind. Okay? Statement goes on. God's purposes, purpose in committing to men and women the mission that he committed to Christ is to disentangle his followers from all worldly policy and to give them a work identical with the work that Christ did. What does identical mean? <laughs> disentangle his followers from all worldly policy. What kind of worldly policies do we need to get disentangled from at the end of time? Well, actually, the sentence there, the statement kind of gave it away. It actually said all worldly policy, so, mm, yeah, okay. But 
What's the first worldly policy that comes to mind when we say, what do we need to get disentangled from at the end of time? Maybe Sunday worship? It's a worldly policy. I think we ought to disentangle ourselves from that. It's a good idea. It's a little more complex than it sounds, though. And the whole Sabbath Sunday thing seems a little far removed from medical missionary work. You know, I mean, Sabbath Sunday, that's kind of like theology. And we were talking medical missionary work a minute ago. Is there any rational reason to try mixing those two up? Well, check out this statement. We cannot keep the Sabbath holy unless we serve the Lord in the manner brought to view in the scripture is not this the fast that I have chosen it's Isaiah 58 now the words the Sabbath there are in brackets because in the actual quote says we cannot keep this day holy but the sentence above in the previous paragraph is talking about the Sabbath so it's, that's what, it's, what it means we cannot keep the Sabbath holy unless we're practicing Isaiah 58 which just happens to be the medical missionary chapter right That's a pretty strong word, actually, cannot. It doesn't leave a lot of wiggle room. Well, she quotes the Isaiah 58 here. Is not this the fast that I have chosen, to loose the bands of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke? Is it not to deal thy bread to the hungry, and that thou bring the poor that are cast out to thy house, when thou seest the naked that thou cover, and that thou hide not thyself from thine own flesh? This is the work that rests upon every soul who accepts the service of Christ. And I think that every soul thing there is something kind of close to that individual thing we were talking about a while ago. Going on. All his gifts, capital H, all God's gifts, are to be used in blessing humanity, in relieving the suffering and the needy. We are to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked, to care for the widow and the fatherless, to minister to the distressed and downtrodden. God never meant that the widespread misery in the world should exist. He never meant that one man should have an abundance of the luxuries of life while the children of others should cry for bread. The means, what does means mean? Money, yeah, the capital. The means, over and above the actual necessities of life, are entrusted to man to do good, to bless humanity. This is a really, really perplexing statement to me. This is the kind of thing that bugs me. What, in fact, are the actual necessities of my life? I wonder about that sometimes. You know, the truth is that I could, you know, continue biological function with very, very little. You know. Um, I think it'd be easier to answer that question if I lived in a third world country or something. It's always bugged me. There's a great YouTube video out. I keep 
rehearsing this one to my daughters. Somebody went around, and I think the first one starts off with a little guy. He's maybe about 10 years old, and he's standing in front of this rickety little hut someplace in I don't know where. And he stands there, and with a perfectly straight face, he says, in an accent, I just hate it when my Wi-Fi signal isn't strong enough to get to the other end of my house. And then the next, there's a little girl, and she says, I just hate it when I forget the name of the, of the, of the upstairs maid, or something like that. I don't know. And, and, all, and, and it's first world problems. That's exactly it. Yeah, and the whole thing you know, just has a headline. that says, first world problems. <laughs> you know, the actual necessities of life, the means over and above are entrusted to man to do good, to bless humanity. Let's go on. The Lord says, sell that ye have and give alms. Be ready to distribute, willing to communicate. When thou makest a feast, call the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind. Loose the bands of wickedness, undo the heavy burdens. Let the oppressed go free. Break every yoke. Deal thy bread to the hungry. Bring the poor that are cast out to thy house. When thou seest the naked, cover him. Satisfy the afflicted soul. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. These are the Lord's commands. And that's the way she put them together. I didn't, I didn't bring all those excerpts together. That's, that's what it reads there in Christ's Object Lessons. These are the Lord's commands. It's right about here that I find that my faith and love starts getting all squishy. <laughs> the problem is that doing all this stuff is going to take a lot of my time and probably a fair chunk of my cash. And I get real defensive about those two things somehow. We're busy people. We're on a budget, right? Got to pay the rent. Got to make the mortgage. Got the car payment. Got tuition for my kid at school. It's nice to buy groceries now and then. I don't have time for this. I'm a busy guy. Wow. I struggle with these things. So here's a question. What if that kind of thinking turns out to be a worldly policy that I need to get disentangled from? What if, when I come up to that sort of a point, true faith is whispering in my ear and says, Is it unrealistic to look at the daily schedule and the financial balance sheet of Jesus while he was on earth and say, that works for me? Would it work for me? I worry about verses like this. A disciple is not above his master, nor a servant above his master. 
It's enough for a disciple to be like his teacher and a servant like his master. And this one. A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher. Wow. What kind of training am I missing so far? You know, a while ago we were talking about the Laodicean message. And in early writings, Ellen White says that it's the straight testimony called forth by the counsel to the true witness that brings on the shaking of God's people. And of late, I've begun to wonder if that straight testimony addressed to those who are rich and increased with goods might actually have something to do with being rich and increased with goods. What, what if that wasn't as symbolic as I've always thought it was? What if it's not talking only about my, my spiritual assessment of myself? What if it actually has something to do with living in the richest nation on earth? Those things bug me. I think they might bug other people too. I think it might be enough to create a shaking. I have no question that I can be annoying enough to get people mad at me. But that's not the shaking we're talking about. Well, <clears throat> here is a fascinating statement. We shall not be stinted for means if we will only go forward trusting in God. The Lord is willing to do a great work for all who truly believe in him. If the lay members of the church, the individual lay members, I'm thinking, will arouse to do the work that they can do, going on a warfare at their own charges. That's an expression that she uses occasionally. It means you pay your own way. If they will go on a warfare at their own charges, each seeing how much he can accomplish in winning souls to Jesus, we shall see many leaving the ranks of Satan to stand under the banner of Christ. If our people will act upon the light that is given in these few words of instruction, we shall see the salvation of God. Wonderful revivals will follow. Sinners will be converted and many souls will be added to the church. When we bring our hearts into unity with Christ and our lives into harmony with his work, the spirit that fell on the disciples on the day of Pentecost will fall on us. I'm... Just in my own mind, I'm starting to get more of a coherent picture. This is just my, to my own thinking, anyhow. About the end of time. And I'm seeing, it, it seems to me, I'm, I'm seeing topics that are coming closer and closer together and fitting together. The whole thing of character perfection and vindicating the character of God. And the loud cry 
and righteousness by faith. Righteousness by faith. I think righteousness has a lot to do with right doing. And faith, I think, has a lot to do with trusting God. And I'm starting to think that probably the most practical application of the whole concept of righteousness by faith at the end of time is someone who goes ahead and does the right thing when they don't have the time and they don't have the money. This is fuzzy. I'll just be honest. This is fuzzy. It's, it's hard for me, it, just in my own life, let alone talking to anybody else, it's hard for me to figure out how to do that on a day-by-day -day basis. What I think is clearer in my mind, and I'm, you know, I mean, I'm probably falsely imagining some aspects of this because I'm sure I just don't have everything perfect, but what's clearer in my mind is what I think is going to happen at the end of time. I expect to see the crumbling of most of our societal structures, political, financial, medical, social. They will progressively crumble. I don't think it's all going to just blow up in, you know, like an atom bomb type of thing or something. But I think it's going to get harder and harder, and, and things are going to become less and less functional. We're rapidly headed that way with the medical situation in the United States. This is a fun time to live in Canada and watch what's going on down here. Um, but things get messy, things get cumbersome, it starts not working, and more and more people get cut off on the edges, and life gets harder and harder, and frustration le levels rise. Chaos starts, you know, creeping up the ladder type of thing. There come a time, there will come a time, I project, when it's going gonna, it's gonna to come down to pretty much a dog-eat-dog -dog world out there. And everybody is going to be scrambling and scrabbling, trying to maintain whatever they've got and, and stay alive and stay functioning in a non-functional environment. And it's going to affect Seventh-day Adventists just like everybody else. There's a great little parable Jesus told, and I'm sure this isn't exactly what he probably thought of as his primary application of it. But the parable of the two houses, you know? The wise man built his house upon the rock. The foolish man built his house upon the stone. Sand, yeah, thank you, sand. <laughs> and the rain came and the winds blew. And it was the same storm. The difference is not the storm. God didn't say, oh, well, they're my friends, so I'll just send them a little poofy, poofy storm, okay? He didn't do that. It was the same storm. The difference was the house. One house had it, one house didn't. When things get tough, Adventists are going to be in the middle of toughness just like everybody else. But what I see is God's people at that point when they can ill afford it in terms of time and money, they're out there helping other people. 
they are sacrificing, they are giving of their resources, whatever they may have, they are helping other people, they are exerting the influence of love. And the day will come when they can no longer do that. When it comes to the point where there's a, a boundary of some form or kind or making where I cannot go beyond this point because I don't have the time, I don't have the energy, I don't have the money. I cannot help anymore. And at that point, they do it anyway. Because right now, love has gone before and taken the precedence. And I've used up the resources that I've had. And that's just, that's love. Now we're down to faith. Will I do what I cannot reasonably do? Because I believe God has my back. If God has my back, I can afford to take care of the next guy. If I have to take care of my own needs, well, I'm going to have to do that at some point. And this is the issue of the great controversy from the very beginning. Lucifer said, God's not taking care of me. He, he wants me to go this way, and it's not a good idea. I need to go that way. Obviously, I'll be better off if I go that way. I'm not going to trust God. I'm going to do what, what logic, and, and it's, it's obvious I need to go that way. And he lost faith in God, and the whole system went downhill from there. And this is why righteousness is by faith. This is why justification is by faith. This is why you don't have to have perfect theology in the past, okay, right? I'm not talking to the end. This is why Martin Luther, with some of the weirdest theology in certain departments that you could ask for, is going to be in heaven. He had the faith thing down. <laughs> God can teach him the details later. It's the faith that's important. Do you trust God enough that he'll take care of you, that you'll do what he asks you to do? And it doesn't make sense. That's all the universe wants to see. If we'll do what we're asked, we're safe to be in heaven. He can teach us the details. Now, that's not the 144,000. The 144,000 need to learn the details. Because we have to give, God's people have to give this demonstration that it's possible for human beings to learn those details. And that it's possible to combine that intelligence, that understanding, that spiritual growth with faith and love and then pass the hardest of all possible tests, which is the time of Jacob's trouble. We won't go into that right now. But to me, I kind of like this. It's all starting to make some sense. There's a reason he asks us to do medical missionary work. It's because it couldn't work without it. <laughs> There's a reason that righteousness is by faith. It's because that's the source of the whole problem. There's a reason that the spirit that fell on the disciples on the day of Pentecost has not fallen on us yet. I like things to be reasonable. I regret some of the reasons, but I'd rather have it reasonable than unreasonable. So I'd like to leave that with you. I'd like to encourage you. I'd like to challenge you. 
you, you don't need a 501c3 to do something charitable. You don't need a committee for everything you might want to do. Now, there's a time and a place for committees. They're a necessary evil, I'm afraid. I just, I'm not a real big fan of sitting on committees. I've done enough of that. But you're not going to start you know, a college or a sanitarium or something all by yourself. Oh, I think I'll just do this one by myself. That would be stupid. Okay. There's a time and a place to bring in the talents of other people. And yeah, you're going to have to have, you know. But there's a lot you can do as an individual. That's what I want to talk about. <coughs> Determine to do something as an individual. I can't tell you what, because I don't know where you live and what your opportunities are. But somewhere around you, somebody has a problem. Maybe you can help them. Maybe it's simple, mindless little thing like the little old lady three houses down that needs the gutters cleaned out because the water's coming off the side of the gutter and running in her windowsill. But it would be suicide for her to get up on a ladder, so that's probably not a good idea. Maybe you can check on her gutters. It's not too complicated. Unless getting up on a ladder is suicide for you, too. Then that's not your job. <laughs> okay. As individuals, determine to find something to do. Some way to manifest the love and the faith. And back to the end of time. The Adventists are out there. They're working to help people. And other people are getting to the point where they say, I can't do that anymore. There are, there are good people out there that, you know, with, with good tendencies. You know, they're charitable folks. And they'll be helping too. But there's going to come a point, if they do not have the Lord and the fullness that will be needed at that time, there will come a point where they say, I can't do that anymore. I cannot. And then God's people are going beyond that point. And what we have now are two profound influences. Number one is the love aspect. But number two, here in your entire circle of acquaintances, all these people are down on all fours, scrabbling for all they're worth, just trying to maintain their life and existence. And you're in there with them, but you're not working for yourself. And they're not stupid. They can look over and they can say, how is this that you even are alive? And at that point, you say... It's kind of strange, isn't it, you know? But I find when I work for others, God takes care of me. He would take care of you too. Would you like to live this way? Come, follow me as I follow him. Behold your God. Our work is identical. Kind of mind blowing, isn't it? Would you covenant with me to find something to do as an individual?
want to make this easy. Would you commit within the next month, give you four weeks, four weeks, find one distinct over and above beyond what you've done before, something to do. Seek it out. It's kind of like Job. Remember Job? He says, the cause I knew not, I sought out. I think that's what we're supposed to be doing. I think that's what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm not doing as well as I should. I know that. I'm, I'm barely scratching the surface of this. It's frustrating. I'm, my time is all tied up. You know, it's, it's, it's a complicated thing. My life is as squirrely as the next guy's, you know, and I'm not getting done what I want to get done. I often feel pretty hypocritical when I talk about this kind of stuff. It's like, you know, oh, yeah, Dave. That's kind of the advantage of living 2,000 miles away. You can't really check on me that well. <laughs> but <laughs> would you covenant with me in the next four weeks to go above, beyond, outside the box, whatever cliche we want to use, find someone... And you know, it can be a church member. You can even help church members. It's fair to do that. Actually, Paul says, especially the household of faith. I think there's something special about helping non-church members. But we have a special bond of fellowship with our church members, so we ought not to overlook them anyhow. Four weeks, one distinct project, whatever magnitude you want to make. Got one in mind? I'll admit, I'm a real cynical guy when it comes to appeals. You know what I hate? I hate just general appeals. Everybody that loves Jesus, will you please stand with me? Don't sit down. You know, I just, I, I, those things, I'll just be honest, it's just my attitude. It's like, oh, please, yes, I'll stand. I mean, yes, I love Jesus, but this is pathetic. I don't want a pathetic altar call here. I want you to think, have you got something in mind, well-developed in your mind, in the next four weeks, something you can and will do in the next four weeks? If you have something in mind, stand up. And if you're not standing, that's okay. But keep thinking. <laughs> keep thinking. When you have a project in mind, if you're willing, stand up. Any more? Thinking? We can start listing some suggestions. It's coming up on summer. There's probably some folks that may need their lawns mowed. There you go. That's good for people that have a better voice than mine. <laughs> Long-term care centers become short-term care centers when I go singing. But <laughs> any more projects? Helping uh, people in the community who are computer challenged. There you go. There you go. Anybody game on that one? Um, I signed up to have my own radio show. Okay. Okay. Well, uh, what, what's the theme? 
Could it be health-related and spread across the last day? There you go. Okay. The homeless people right down your street. Homeless people down the street. Say sack lunches, go around the neighborhood, pass them out. Sack lunches, okay. Put a little glow track in or something, yeah. Steps to Christ, okay, you know, it's, uh, I'm, I'm a cynical guy, I'll just be honest, you know, and I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not into the gospel-less, uh, social gospel approach. Yes, sir? Calling a sick friend. Calling a sick friend, there you go. Visiting someone in the hospital or setting. Visiting someone in the hospital, okay. There you go, I see a hand. Doing good deeds on Friday. All right. <laughs> Thursdays will sometimes work, but Fridays are really good. Okay. Okay. Give out some literature with a big smile. Okay. Yes, ma'am. Vacation Bible School, and then also in addition to um, evolution and creation um, with disadvantaged youth in our area, and then followed up by, <laughs> it's a big project, followed up by question and answer by Dr. Moore for anybody on theology. Hmm? Now, I don't think you thought that all up right now, did you? <laughs> Okay, okay, well then we'll, we'll grandfather that one in then. <laughs> you got one. Yard work for the elderly. Let me tell you a quick story. I used to run a vegan restaurant. And I had the coolest job, I think I've told this before, but I had the coolest job in the place because I made smoothies. And all day long I'd make smoothies. And you know, the, the one most profound thing I learned from two years of running that restaurant was how easy it was to win gratitude. All I had to do was you know, make an extra five ounces of smoothie every so often, you know, pour them out in these little one ounce cups, and I'd take them around and say, hey, do you want this? This is our number one seller. It's the immune bill. It's made with kale, parsley, and pineapple. We sell more of that than anything else in the place. Would you like one? This is the Caribbean dream. It's, it's, it's wonderful. You'll like that, yeah. yeah, yeah. And just go around and be friendly and smile and chat them up a little bit and give them something they had not paid for. We're talking two cents worth of product. <laughs> you know? But they loved it. It was insane. <laughs> it's, you know what I learned from that? At least I, I concluded. I came to the conclusion, at least as far as Wichita, Kansas is concerned, there are a large percentage of the population walking the streets that nobody's done anything nice for in weeks. Just do something nice for someone. Any more want to stand? We'll pray that you keep thinking. Okay, why don't we all stand for prayer? Father, we thank you that you intend that the highest power in the universe should rattle through us and affect others. We pray that you would help us to understand this. We want to be wise in these things. There's, there's no question that these sorts of things can be handled poorly. We can be foolish. We've seen that in our history in the past of taking this idea of being nice to people and doing it in a way that was actually counterproductive. We don't want to do that, but we do want to learn how to have a ministry identical with Christ. We do want to learn 
how to manage medical missionary work in a way that does not cover it with selfishness. We want to learn how to go about Christ's methods alone because we're told that they will bring true success in reaching the people. I pray that you would impress our hearts and minds. Open opportunities. Help us to find more occasions than we're probably looking for even. We ask that you would use us to be an influence on those around us. Help us to understand, because this is, it, it seems like kid stuff. It seems like, oh, duh. I mean, okay, so I mowed a lawn, so what? But Father, I can't escape what I read. This is the key to the loud cry. This is the entire deciding factor in the judgment between the sheep and the goats. What have you done to the least of these, my brother? I read this stuff, and it bothers me. And I pray that you would help us to understand it each in our own minds, each in our own hearts. We thank you for this time that we've enjoyed. We thank you for the blessings. We pray you will be with all who were here and have already gone and all who are here and will be departing soon. Give us safety in our travels and a blessing in our work for you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.